In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to the Sahapod Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great show for you today. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like it, comment, and share it. My guest today is Delphine Vakunta. She's a Cam Cameroonian American communication and public relations professional in international humanitarian and development affairs. Her work spans the Africa Development Bank, the United Nations, the NGOs, and the private sector. She has worked in Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Somalia, and South Sudan. She holds a master's of science degree in educational leadership and policy analysis and a Bachelor of Science degree in African Languages and Literature, with certificates in Leadership and Global Health. Welcome, Delphine, to the conversation today. Thank you so very much for having me, Ruth. Thank you for making time to have this exchange. No, thank you, and thank you for making the time. I always enjoy um, speaking, but you know, you're also someone I admire and whose life I follow a lot, so I'm just glad we are getting to speak. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So tell me about yourself. Um, what do you do? What does your day look like? Um, sure. Um, thank you for that very kind introduction as well. Um, I think you've said most of it. Uh, I'm Delphine Vakunta. I am a communications professional um, during my nine to five. Um, I've worked in different countries across the continent Um I'm currently uh, with the African Development Bank uh, based in Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire. But I would say maybe in my free time, I am a storyteller, a content creator focused on encouraging and um, inspiring people to explore the African continent. Um, right now, in terms of what my day-to-day -day work looks like, my work generally is around telling stories, stories of impact of um, creating awareness and promoting the work that the African Development Bank Group is doing to address development deficits on the continent, but also emerging issues such as the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact of the, the, the Russian crisis on the continent. And so on a day-to-day, -day, that looks like drafting documents, um, stories, editing, publishing content around the bank's work. Right. And what are some of these stories? Um, they, they, they're varied. Um, they range um, on a series of different things. For right now, for example, I'm working on the African Development Fund, which is a concessional lending arm of the bank group's uh, work on the continent focused on complex uh, and volatile contexts, uh, countries on the continent. And so we are in a replenishment year. So we're drafting stories that kind of capture the impact of the funds uh, 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 resourcing on the continent. 
um, really trying to get a human face to to what the fund and the bank is doing on the continent. So it's really telling human narratives around that. Right. And of course, um, of course, the Africa Development Bank is one of the big institutions for us on, especially on the continent, that is actually yes. focused on finding solutions for, you know, for people, you know, for Africans, but actually putting money uh, into those uh, solutions uh, for the people, which is really a very inspiring um, undertaking, I have to say. Yes, no, it, it really is. The, the bank is doing incredible work, really robust work across the continent, um, particularly around infrastructure. I think we see that the bank is doing a lot of work around infrastructure, um, around systems building and, and all of that. Really, really fantastic work. Yeah. Yeah. And I know before, of course, I met you when you were working with uh, Ocha, yeah. uh, which is really, really humanitarian work, which is our bread and butter. How did you end up in the humanitarian sector? Um, I like to say that I found myself in the humanitarian space. To be very frank, I never planned to be in the humanitarian field. As you can tell from my background, I was I had all intentions of studying, uh, of doing education policy on the continent at the time. And um, during my master's program, I was really interested in um, having field experience. I was born and raised in Cameroon, but I wanted to work professionally in the field. Um, so I did a lot of work. I began exploring a, a work in, in Sierra Leone. I worked in Sierra Leone for quite some time, both during my undergraduate years and also while I was doing my master's. And um, when I finished doing that, I, I decided, you know, it, it would make sense for me to be in the space. You know, they say you are you know, the people you surround yourself with. And I wanted to be surrounded by people who are thinking about development, about uh, uh, progress for Africa. And so I moved to New York and uh, one thing led to another. I came across Ocha and the rest is history. Right. And Ocha took you to Somalia, South Sudan, Haiti. And I want to ask you pretty much about all of those three countries. Um, I don't know if I've missed out one. And here to me really is like, what stood out for you in Somalia? Yeah, Somalia was very interesting. Um, It was, uh, I think, one of the most, uh, I wouldn't say the most difficult uh, operations that I had been in. But I think what really stood out to me there was the, I would say, the cyclical pattern of the crisis itself. Um, You know, it's funny because I was reading a headline recently um, that was talking about the impact of, you know, the food security situation, essentially. And I had to take a double take because it read very similar to a headline that I had contributed to, to, to drafting during my time there which was also similar to another headline that I had read in 2018 before I joined the operation. And so I, I think what's, what stands out to me in that operation really is a cyclical pattern of, of the crisis, which of course can be attributed to you know, the lapse of, of the absence of a, of a central government in Somalia at the time, but also the security environment, which uh, unquestionably played a huge part in in how humanitarians were able to to reach people and really hindering humanitarian partners' ability to provide assistance in a timely fashion. Yeah, no, I know. And even when we were talking before um, before we started recording, um, Somalia is is again going through a very very difficult uh, food security situation. 
Um, and I guess I was listening to some colleagues and, and looking at it as well. What is different this year around is actually, I think, uh, rains have really failed for three consecutive seasons, if, if I'm not mm. wrong. Um, but certainly, again, it is a country that is, um, again, really having a serious food insecurity problem. Yes. Yes. And I think the impact of climate change, we're seeing the impact of climate change exacerbate, you know, an already a situation that was already very dire. Um, yeah. yeah. South Sudan, what stood out for you there? Um, South Sudan, I have to say, was my favorite operation that I worked in. Um, what stood out, two things really stood out to me in that, in that operation. One being the power of communication and second, the danger of, of one approach to the work that we do. In terms of communication, um, I was incredibly inspired by the dedication, the commitment, the persistence of the South Sudanese national staff but also national organizations mm -hmm. that were really going above and beyond the call of duty to provide assistance to people who needed it most. I mean, we're talking about colleagues wading through inches and inches of floodwaters, carrying relief items on their head to get to people who need assistance. Colleagues taking very risky missions to get into the bushes to find people who had been displaced because of, of conflict. And that level of care, that level of love, that level of, of, of attention to another human being really inspired me. And while I was inspired by that, I also noticed that those were not the stories that were coming out of South Sudan. And it really made me question how, as the international community, we could do a better job of highlighting these stories and really lauding these heroes in these contexts. And I can't help but to think about uh, Chimamanda Adichie's quote that says something along the lines of, of um, you know, power is not the ability to tell a story, but it is the ability to make that narrative, the definitive narrative of that person. And in South Sudan, I, I, I remember thinking a lot about how could we do a better job of ensuring that Stories are being told by the people, by the South Sudanese, and not always just always about South Sudanese, because as well as we can tell these stories, you know, no one can express somebody else's life better than they can. Um, and then I would say the second thing that really stood out to me, again, was the, the danger of, of one approach. Um, you know, I think there's a tendency for um, the humanitarian community, the international community really to, to recycle and do what always works. And I think while this is a good thing, I, I found myself often thinking about, you know, whether there were missed opportunities to think critically about the trade-offs for taking calculated risks, you know, to, to, you know, to take calculated risks in areas across the country where development and sustainable solutions could take hold. For example, in South Sudan, we know that one of the, um, one of the, the, the issues is, you know, the, the, the proliferation of armed groups in the country and young men, young people wanting to join these groups because there's just a lack of sense of hope for the future. And, you know, I, I, I often found myself while I was there questioning, how could we interrupt that narrative and how could we, what could we do to make sure that these young men saw a different alternative for themselves? And could we invest in pockets in the country where some of these sustainable development solutions could take place? 
Um, so those those are the two things that really stood out to me to me in South Sudan. Right, Delphine, there's so much <laughs> in there. <laughs> yes, that 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 yeah. you have you have said, and 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 I don't know if we have time to go into all of it, but I do want to come back with just um, a few questions for you. Uh, I'm so glad that you you really highlight the work of our South Sudanese colleagues. So I think, I agree with you, we don't celebrate that enough um, as, as, as we should. And it is true. We all, we keep saying all of us, really the first people to respond are the national staff, are the local NGOs, are the communities. But I also um, like what you say about not, you know, I mean, I, I thought you were, um, when you're talking about Chimamanda, I thought you were going to talk about the danger of, uh, of one story. Of a single story, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of a single story. But um, that piece around not just telling stories about the people. And I just want to ask you, especially as a communications expert, how do we change that? How do we help people affected by crisis be the ones to tell their stories and in a way drive the story that they want to tell? That's a really good question, Ruth. And I think it's a million dollar question because I don't know that there is, I have a solution or an answer um, for that. But I do know that, um, or something that I've noticed in the in the places that I've been in is that we could do well with increasing the participation of local actors in everything that we do. And I think we do a very good job of doing that in terms of programmatic planning. Um, and, and I think we've got, especially Ocha, I would say, has gotten really good at, you know, doing that at a strategic level in terms of the way we think about the HRP. But I think one area that we could continue to be, improve on is around communication. I think we have, you know, we often have an approach of, you know, we go to the field, we take a photo, we have an engage, you know, we discuss with the beneficiaries, we get the service and we come and we write something back. Um, and we, we dictate what that narrative is, but I don't know that we, we ask them, what do you want the world to know about your story? What do you want people to know about South Sudan? So I think involvement of, you know, cause there are also local orators in these communities and, you know, thinking creatively about, how we incorporate that into our strategic uh, approach to communication, I think could make a difference. Just like we do for programs, I think we can do a better job of, of doing that for communications as well. And working with local organizations who are already telling stories in these countries. It's not like it's a vacuum. You know, there are right. people telling powerful stories in these in these countries. And how can we work more closely in collaboration with them to bring that out even more onto the international platform? Yeah. And I'm kind of, I mean, part of the reason I do this project is because I'm really obsessed <laughs> with storytelling. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and fiction in itself, fiction as a vehicle um, for discourse and discussion, because I kind of feel fiction just has different things it does in a different way than nonfiction. And I know we'll get to that uh, in a bit. But I'm also just really always tinkering around, like, you know, I, you know, as Ruth, I want to tell my story. You know, I want to be yeah. <laughs> the one to drive what it is I want the world to know uh, about me. And it's so important. And I feel like half the time I feel like we don't have money to respond to everyone's needs, but we can give them a voice 
and yes. and and a real voice that they have a choice uh, about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't agree with you more, Ruth. And you know, I think the narrative about you know giving a voice to the voiceless, I I cringe so much at that statement because it's not that they're voiceless; it's just yes. that they haven't been given the platform to speak for themselves. So. Let's, you know, how can we do more of that and giving people platforms to tell their stories themselves? And I had actually never thought about what you just mentioned about giving voice to the voiceless, but you're absolutely right. Uh, in fact, if one kind of pushes that, that statement, I guess they have a voice already, you're right. Uh, so <laughs> what is it, you know, we are trying to say with that statement, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Haiti, what stood out for you in... Uh, in your time in Haiti? Ah, Haiti was interesting. Um, I think in Haiti, what stood out to me the most was the narrative around resilience. Um, and I think the Haitian people are incredibly resilient considering everything that they've gone through. Um, but I... <laughs> I couldn't help but to question, you know, because I had seen, you know, what the country had gone through, I couldn't help but to question, at what point is resilience enough? You know, at what point do we say, okay, no human being needs to be this resilient? And, you know, I, I can't help but to, to, to make the correlation with, you know, the narrative around resilience that we have around Black women, for example. You know, we say Black women are strong, which is, yes, we are. And because of that narrative and because of that storyline, we don't give Black women the, the the love, the attention, the resources they really need to thrive. You know, we give them just enough to survive, but not enough to really thrive. And I, and I felt like that was the same in in Haiti. You know, and that became even more true um, for me in July 2021, where the country was reeling from the the political impacts of the assassination of the president. The economic situation was deplorable. There was a surge in gang violence in the country. And because of that, people were fleeing the country because they simply could not survive. At the same time, Haitians were being deported into Haiti from Texas, from California. You know, and as Miriam Chansey, you know, refers to or interrogates in her book, What's Storm, What Thunder? It's what is the relationship between Haiti and the rest of the world? And for me, it's a question of, are the people of Haiti getting the support that they need? Are Haitians getting enough support? And to me, that was the blaring, the blaring thing that I, I took away from that experience. Right. No, and the, the resilience, it's, it's something I can't, sometimes I feel it's like a double-edged sword. Um, yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know how if you go through that level of shock, you know, that is multifaceted, that is sustained for so long, but we are celebrating you being resilient, right? Yes. Uh, how far can humans be expected or called upon to be resilient? And, I, you know, again, yes. it's just another question, you know, we're always like, yeah, people are resilient and we are celebrating their resilience, but how far does that go, Right. 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 And at what point is that just enough? Like, yeah. 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 Um, before we talk about stories and books, um, what storm, what thunder is a book I read recently as well. Um, 
it is an amazing book. It basically just um, has these characters um, who really were, some of them were in Haiti when the earthquake um, happened. And some yeah. of them were outside uh, Haiti. And it's just really looking at these characters who are related, you know, as family and how the earthquake impacts impacts them. But I know we are not going to discuss that book today. Um, so before I get to stories and fiction, tell me one, uh, what do you see as the, um, the biggest driver of humanitarian crisis? The biggest driver of humanitarian crises... Um... I would say the, 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 they're, they're varied. You know, I think there are, there are two main drivers, I would say, in my view. I think there are the proximate causes, um, that have to do with conflict, um, with again, socio-political, uh, inequities, climate change. But then there are also the ultimate root causes that have to do with the remnants of historical global geopolitics that continue to play out today. You know, if you look at uh, a country, for example, like uh, DRC, which has been in the news recently, you can see the trajectory of how the continued interference, the continued um, influence of various actors continues to perpetuate, you know, this humanitarian situation in the country. So I think that the proximate causes and also the the root causes that, right. that both need to be addressed, you know, at the same time. Right. And if you had to pick one thing, one solution to these drivers, to these causes, what would that be? If there was one thing we could do as the humanitarian community, but even as I ask this question, I also know that, you know, probably the solutions are not with humanitarian actors. But anyway, yeah. what would that be for you? <laughs> um, oh, that's a tough question. The one thing, because I do think that, you know, humanitarian and development solutions need to work in tandem. And, yeah. you know, at the same time, you know, the nexus, implementation of the nexus. But generally, I think that the world should be working to prevent humanitarian, uh, humanitarian uh, crises. And that can only be achieved through collective action. Um, and doing something preventative, both at an individual level and at a systemic level as the humanitarian community. So what are some of the preventative things that we can incorporate as humanitarians in our work that, you know, recognizes that, yes, humanitarian immediate life-saving needs are necessary. And we can, how can we couple that with potential long-term solutions that can have a positive, positive impact on the humanitarian situation? So I think it's looking at preventative solutions right. and really implementing the nexus, which I know is uh, a, a hot topic and a buzzword uh, also for the for the entire international community. Um, yeah. Right. If you think about your professional life so far, what is one thing that you're proud of that you feel personally you've achieved? What would that be? Sure. Um I think something that I'm proud of is um, making a genuine effort to center people in the work that I do and in whatever context that I do, um, whether it's writing stories, whether it's going out and connecting with people one-on-one, -on -one, um, be it national staff, even beneficiaries. I think my, my genuine desire to connect with the people in the context that I'm working with right. is part of my, my largest achievement in this field. Yeah. 
And I guess somewhat related to this, um, just because of your answers, well, if you think about, you know, all of these countries where you've worked uh, dealing with humanitarian crisis, if you think about one story, it could be a person or situation yes. that has really stayed with you, what would that be? You know, I really have to go back to my experience in South Sudan. I think that whole mission was really formative for me. Um, but really seeing, I think, for the very first time, the level of dedication of a human being to another human being, you know, really colleagues doing, going at extraordinary lengths to bring, you know, relief to people really affected by war. That experience really was it changed the way I approached my life personally and from a professional standpoint um, and helped me define for myself how I wanted to show up in the world and how much care and how much empathy I wanted to, I wanted to have with anybody that I interact with. So for right. me, that hands down, that was my, that was the most um, formative experience for me. Yeah. Okay. And before I ask you my last question, I know you've started a mouth media platform. Yes. Uh, can you tell me about that? What is that about? Uh, if someone is interested in connecting to you about that, how how can they do that? Yeah, so I, um, some friends and I started a multimedia platform called Forward. Um, and um, it was a passion project that came out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, basically, it, it, it's an attempt, basically our aim and uh, what our goal is really is to bring to the forefront and to a bigger platform some of the conversations that we were having, you know, just amongst us about what it means to be a, a Black female professional in the humanitarian space, in the development space, and also in corporate America. And um, how try, trying to essentially share our experiences, but also create a space for people to share resources and, and connect with each other to talk, interrogate some of these things and help each other not have to um, experience some of the, the challenges and the difficulties that we, that we went through, you know, it's, we've done it, we've gone through it once, somebody else doesn't need to repeat that. So that's, that's, that's why we came up with Forward. Uh, we're currently on a hiatus and um, looking to recalibrate and shift things around um, with an aim to come back uh, bigger and stronger. So more to come on. Yeah, we're on all social media platforms. We're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Um, so you can find us there at uh, at Forward Page. Fantastic. I just think it's such a cool project and uh, yeah. look forward to connecting with you on it once it's back up and running. Um, and this leads me to my last question for you, Delphine, which is basically if whoever will listen to this conversation, if there's one thing, one action that they can do, to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis, what would that be for you? I would say we should all, again, we should all strive to prevent humanitarian uh, crises. And we can each do that by thinking at what we can do individually at our respective levels. I think it can get very overwhelming to think about the magnitude of all the crises that we're dealing with and what that means and become desensitized to all of that. Um, you know, you read a headline that says 100 people have been displaced from X, Y location. And you think, what does that mean? You know, 100 people from your neighborhood have that just disappeared. What does that mean? And, you know, thinking about people, you know, think about crisis, humanizing crises and thinking about people at an individual level. You know, you think of, you know, when a crisis hits, you think about 
Do people have food? Do they have shelter? Do they have, are the basic needs met? And I think in thinking about preventative measures, we can each do something at our individual level to address some of that. And for me personally, I think a lot of it has to do with making investments in organizations and projects and thinking that centers youth and young people. Why? Because we know that when youth and women, youth, young people and women thrive, societies and communities can really soar. So thinking about investments around that, whether it's projects around skills training, whether it's you know, um, uh, contributing to projects or initiatives that support uh, infra micro infrastructure development in volatile contexts like building solar, you know, water wells or solar panels or you know whatever the case may be. Um, but also for people who are not in this field of work, um, I think it's just to remember that at the end of the day, we're all going through a human experience, and you know, humanizing experiences I think is is is, is important. And finding ways to to invest and to 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 contribute to some of these initiatives, and you know whether it's just you know traveling or you know um, exploring the world, and I think contributing again to 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 local solutions, I think is is absolutely key. But it's finding the thing that you can do at your level where you are now with what you have to to contribute to a preventative action. Thank you so much for your time today, Delphine. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Delphine today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, comment, and share this YouTube. I'd like to thank Jamal Swift, my co-producer, and the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you and goodbye.